Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground moving the needle in public health and medicine. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rock Health Summit 2021 virtual series. This is my second summit interview that I'm hosting in partnership with my new podcast, The Heart of Healthcare. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people, and I just love getting the opportunity to talk to amazing leaders like my guest today. Dr. Lucy Helanathy is a clinical associate professor of medicine at Stanford University and an advocate for culture change around end-of-life care. She has implemented novel healthcare delivery models in primary care, hospitals, and health systems, and serves as the host of her own podcast, Gravity, which explores narratives of suffering. She personally knows end-of-life caregiving as she is the widow of Dr. Paul Helanthi, author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, When Breath Becomes Air, which was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize and for which she wrote that blog. She went to Yale School of Medicine, completed her residency at UCSF, and did a postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford's Clinical Excellence Research Center. Welcome to the Heart of Healthcare and to the Rock Health Summit. Thanks so much for having me. It's so nice to see you today. Yeah, likewise. So why don't we start from the beginning? Tell us about your path to becoming a doctor and the work you do today. Sure. So I entered medicine sort of because of what you just said, because of the chance to be with people um, and be with people in really exciting moments and really terrible moments. And I didn't quite know what I was getting into. It turned out to be you know, I feel like working as a doctor, I sort of use all parts of me at once, you know, the thinking brain and the emotional brain and creativity and science. I can't imagine doing anything else. I entered medical school um, and ultimately became an internist. I fell in love in medical school uh, with another student and we got married and became doctors together. And that was my late husband, Paul Kalanithi. And I kind of feel like in medicine, as in everywhere, you kind of realize expecting the unexpected is part of it and rising to the occasion with whatever is coming to you ends up being a big part of it. And we never could have expected, but Paul, my husband, um, became really sick at the end of his residency in neurosurgery. Um, He was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer at that time, right as we were both finishing our training um, as physicians. And... Um, lived for 22 months with lung cancer and then died uh, in 2015. And he was a really deep thinker. Uh, He thought he would be a philosopher or an English professor and was really interested in meaning and mortality and ultimately entered medicine, really interested in the brain um, and in thinking about suffering in our lives. And 
when he became a patient, um, in addition to being a young physician, he turned to writing as a way to make sense of what was happening to him and ultimately wrote the memoir, When Breath Becomes Air, which came out a little under a year after he died. And I sort of unexpectedly, but really meaningfully to me, took on a book tour um, in his stead and ended up talking about my own path and caregiving and you know, meaning and suffering and literature and sort of took on the rest of our family story as well. And I Mm. think for me, and I'm sure that you relate to this so much is the parts of healthcare that are really interesting to me now in my career and in advocacy and storytelling are the places where the business case and the moral case intersect. Mm. And that's to me, things like end of life care and caregiving um, and clinician burnout and thinking about, um, you know, the, all of the humans within medicine and the healthcare system. Sure. Um, so right now yeah. I see patients at Stanford and then I um, do a lot of advocacy and speaking and mentoring. And then, like you said, I've recently made this podcast called Gravity. The grief and I guess the mortality that you saw and explored with him has made you a better doctor, a better patient advocate, you know, those are the sort of things that you maybe early on in your career wouldn't have guessed, but here you are. Can you tell us a little bit about how it's made you a more whole doctor and patient advocate? Yeah, sure. You mean how you, you're saying having gone through loss and grief my own yeah. life? Yeah. Um, I think being a doctor echoed into the experience of being a patient and then vice versa. And I think part of it is that Grief and loss and the way our bodies change and mortality, they're really hard to put words around. Like there's not, Mm -hmm. well, I guess one way I would say it is the battle metaphor, as everybody knows, is so prominent when we think about illness and it's like really Mm. pervasive when we think about cancer, right? I'm going to fight it. I'm going to beat it. You're a fighter. The war on cancer. And I think that is a really powerful, but in some ways kind of brittle and rigid and incomplete metaphor. And so I think having been a doctor or having been doctors together, Paul and I have sort of developed a language around talking about suffering. And luckily, you know, just kind of like trying on these conversations and seeing what our patients were going through and talking about like, Mm. you know, um, which kind of suffering can you fix and which kind can't you fix and what do you do when you can't fix it? And I think um, and just sort of also talking about like what was important to us in life. I know, you know, obviously people do that with their partners too, but I think being a physician helped me be a little more comfortable with coming to terms with the fact that suffering, like it's a feature, not a bug, right? It's, it's not avoidable suffering in some form, right? For all of us. And so having been a doctor, I think set us up to be less likely to wrestle with the question of why me? Um, because we'd seen so many families go through really hard things. And instead it was kind of like, Mm. why not me? Um, Or like, oh my Mm. God, like now's the time that it's our turn to do this really hard thing that human beings do. Um, Didn't make it any easier, but sort of made it like communal in a way. Mm -hmm. And then I think like having gone through grief and loss and family illness, like when you're in medical school, you sort of get, there's sort of this implicit idea that like there's a separation between you and your patients like you have all this knowledge and you're over here on the healthy team and then there's patients who are sick and like 
for them, but we'll help them. And it's kind of like, I mean, first of all, there's so many people in medicine who have mental illness or disabilities or dealing with family crises, but you're supposed to be so strong. And then you're supposed to just kind of like be objective and be perfect. And Mm -hmm. I think having gone through this and then having so many people open up to me and just sort of realize like there is no difference between the people who work in healthcare and the patients who are there in healthcare. Like we're all sort of in this mix together, trying to figure out how our bodies get through life and our Our decaying bodies. Yeah. Stupid. So, um, I don't know. It helped me with that. I think I became more of a hugger. I became more likely to say, Uh, you know, I, I don't know, let's look this up together or get tears in my eyes or just say, you know, I think it's more likely to put real words on it instead of some sure. perfect words. And I think that's helped a lot. Yeah. Is this, I mean, not like I don't covered... know things and like want to know a yeah. lot of science, sure. but like, you know what I mean? Bringing humility to the conversation. Yeah. Is this yeah. anything that, that was taught in medical school or that they're starting to bring into medical school? Are you seeing, are you maybe helping with some of these lessons that yeah. we can embed earlier on into someone's medical career? That's a great question. I think, yeah, in a number of ways. That teaching is changing a lot. The paternalistic model is really going out of style and a more collaborative Mm -hmm. model is the norm or like starting to be taught. I think there's a whole group of young physicians now who are doing a ton to dismantle stigma about mental illness. Um, And so, and Mm -hmm. seeking help if you're a physician, that's a really huge deal. People are realizing how much communication really matters. Like there was this very interesting Mm -hmm. study out of Stanford that I found so powerful um, where I'll just explain the study, but this is just one example of how it doesn't make sense to be a robot working in healthcare. Um, There was a study where the subjects in the study, the people volunteering for the study had a little histamine injected under their skin in their arm, almost like allergy testing, right? Like a series of little bubbles of itchy rash. And then a pretend clinician came and rubbed a little cream on it and said, this is going to help that rash go down quickly. And within the study, they varied how warm the clinician was and how competent Mm. seeming the clinician was. I don't know exactly how they... Sure. Played this out, but that's like manner, warmth and competence, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah, sure. And then it turned out that the volunteers who had the most warm and competent clinician literally had the rash received sooner. They measured it, they looked at it, they timed it, and that would only work wow. with certain illnesses, you know, like the yeah. neuroendocrine axis. But, but really, truly, it was sort of like the clinician themselves was the medicine. And there's a lot of studies about how patients adhering to their medical regimen or patients opening up about difficult things or substance use, or they can't afford their medication, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It has so much to do with their, whether they feel allied with the clinician. And so um, this stuff, same deal. It's not kind of like some, you know, on the side, little fuzzy wuzzy part of medicine and medical school. I think, um, Mm -hmm. People really are recognizing this as a huge, important part of our skills. Thank God. I imagine though, yeah, I imagine that's freeing for a lot of physicians because you can actually bring your whole self to work and engage with people as human beings. So it's probably great for both sides of the equation. Totally. But it also goes to show how, you know, little short visits or 
spending all your time on insurance paperwork. I mean, yeah, right. everything about healthcare is soulful, yeah. like behind, behind the prior authorization right. argument, like is a human being. And when you're a clinician, you know it, which is why it yeah. feels so painful and like such a waste of time. And so I think, right, yeah. all of this is exactly the reasons that people either burn out or don't, like you say. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, my interactions with my physicians um, for regular care or even for specialty care, I have asthma, I have infertility. So I have, um, you know, doctors that I see regularly. And even with them, I don't get enough time to really get to know them. Um, I think my fertility doctor, now I know the best. We're on text now, <laughs> um, cool. which I don't know if he, if he enjoys that or not. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think that's different, right? In, in fertility care, these are for-profit small businesses where the doctors are the owners. And so they get to kind of set their own boundaries and decide how much time they can spend. Um, these are out-of-pocket procedures. So you don't have to worry about, you know, billing and what's billed and what's not billed. billed. It's really about that relationship. I think there's probably a lot we can learn from, you know, that, I mean, it's wild, wild west and infertility in a lot of ways. Um, and it's not great that it's cash pay, but I do think that there's a lot we can learn about customer satisfaction um, from what they've been That's able to do at fertility yeah. clinics based on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, totally. um, That's so well, I love that you're sharing that, by the way, like as a woman leader, <laughs> I really appreciate that you're sharing that. Yes. Well, um, I started a company around it, around fertility and helping people get pregnancy from my own challenges over the last seven years. Um, and I, now I feel like, um, an unwilling expert in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, like, like any sort of diagnosis, there's a, um, path to just understanding and learning that is very empowering as a patient and mm-hmm. physicians speak a very different language. Uh, they have, you know, deep expertise. And so for, you know, someone kind of coming into any new illness, trying to wrap your mind around it and make empowered decisions. I do think it's really important, you know, to augment your clinical care with as much as you can learn and ask the right, the right questions. I, you know, I am always apologizing for asking these questions um, to my doctor, but I'll say, Oh, I heard about this new procedure. What do you think of this? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm bothering you with all these things. Um, and he's like, no, I love it. Like I, you know, I love when my patients are curious and ask lots of questions um, because it is an evolving field, but I do think, you know, as someone who's become a patient myself and now a patient advocate, I do think having an understanding versus just letting yeah. things happen to you for me has helped me personally better own the situation and feel like mm-hmm. I have some control. I mean, that's the thing for it. I love that. Yes. Yes. A diagnosis there needs to be a sense of control. Yes. And I think that's right. But I think that's right. That apology thing is so interesting because you, it's like, you should feel entitled to everything you need. Right. And fertility is such a powerful example of like, what could be more emotional and important, right? Um, hardly anything. (laughs) We'll be right back after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Let's talk about the other spectrum instead of creating life. Let's talk about mortality and end of life care and some of the things that you think we could better learn from other countries and cultures mm. that we haven't yet brought here or that we're starting to bring here, but we should really know about. Yeah, it's interesting you say other countries and cultures, and I feel like that sort of stretches back in time, right? I think we're in this very strange mm. moment, you know, that's only been around for a few decades where suffering and dying and aging are kind of omnipresent, but also hidden. And I think some of that just has to do with the things that take up our visual space, right? Like everything from Instagram to what's on the news. And at the same time, people are going through these really important struggles with their bodies and not a lot of it is like out in the open. And so, and truly dying, like I would say, I'm guessing more than any moment in history, it's like people used to die at home and people, families used to crowd around people. And now I think we have so much technology. We have intensive care units and there's a real kind of question about how, how should we be using the technology that we have like dialysis machines or ventilators, et cetera. And I think right now the default is to kind of use them in every setting. Um, Mm -hmm. like there's the ubiquitous question of like, would you like us to do everything, um, to try to extend your life? And it's like, who wouldn't say for their mom, like, oh, maybe you should just do only like a third of the stuff for my mom. It's like, of course, no one would ever say that. And I think the question is like, do everything in service of what, right? Like, and I'll just give it like a really personal example. So, um, when my husband, Paul died, um, he was really sick with cancer and then toward the end of his life was having trouble breathing. And we had talked a lot about what was most important to him. And we had a new baby at the time. We decided to have her when he was sick and it was so clear. And he had said it again and again, um, that the things that were really important to him were spending time with her and all of us and then writing because he was working on, um, his manuscript for when breath becomes air. And so Ultimately, when um, he was hospitalized at the end, he was faced with this decision of, do you want to go on life support? Do you want to go on a ventilator? And 
the helpful thing was we were both physicians and we kind of were able to more or less see that if he went mm-hmm. onto the ventilator machine, he might not ever be able to wake up. So he would be alive, but he would probably be sedated and too sick to ever yeah. go home or breathe on his own. Um, and so he decided not to, which was still so hard, so emotionally painful, kind of really hard to tease out. Like even as two doctors, it was sort of like, is this actually it? Like, is this the moment? Could there be a chance? And I think even for us, it was really hard to just like actually rock it at the time. Um, but I think we'd seen enough cases where that turned out to be really painful for the family or it's like, you can't make the decision on your own, even though you would have wanted to. And so, um, that's what he ultimately chose. But I think going into that decision, Mm -hmm. um, the most important thing was like he had kind of teased out what was most important to him. And I think in Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, which is so amazing and such a great book for coming to understand some of these issues, he talks about having a patient who said, if I am well enough to be home and eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on TV, that is what I want to do. That's a meaningful life to me. And other people say, you know, my granddaughter's graduation is coming up and there's like very little I wouldn't do to be able to make it to that graduation. I will suffer a lot to get there. And other people say like, I am so scared of being in pain. Like if I'm going to be in pain, that is the end for me. Or I don't want to live in a facility. I only want to be at home. And so if I can't get my family to be at home. And so I think it's really hard to think about those things and kind of like play out the worst case scenario. Right. But at the same time, even if you haven't, if you have someone who knows you really well, who can kind of like speak for you and what's important to you and be brave enough to say it at the end, that is so helpful. And people talk about, you know, there's the advanced directive paperwork that you do like with an estate attorney, right? You're like, yeah, um, you know, here's the person who would make decisions for me and here's what I would want or not want at the end. But that's kind of a flimsy document that, like came out of patient autonomy to say you have the right to refuse medical care and you have the right for someone else to do it on your behalf. So that's what that paperwork ends up saying. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't tell any doctor or anybody else like who you really are and what's important to you. And so I feel like mm-hmm. actually having someone who knows you and loves you is kind of much more important than those yeah. documents. Yeah. Um, and at the same time having had some discussion about it, I think can really help carry your family through the ocean of grief that comes after, right? Um, You know, and at the same time, all of that decision-making is so thorny and so confusing and so sad. And, you know, I'll never again hear like, he died peacefully with his family around him. It's like, it's so sad, even when you were expecting it. And so, I think it's like, all you can do is do your best. And there's no such thing as no regrets. And like, as long as you just did your best, that is truly all anybody could ask for. And actually, I remember Paula, I remember being really nervous about this, like talking with Paul before he died, you know, like, what if this all just goes to shit? And, you know, you end up getting CPR in the hospital and it's not peaceful. And what if you suffered? And like, ah, like, you know, like I didn't say all of that to him, but he just knew, um, I was worried about really trying to 
represent him and do right by him? And what if I just, what if it got away from me? And he ended up saying this really nice thing that I helped me a lot. He said, you know, like, even if everything goes sideways and you're really second guessing what happens to me at the end, he said, the last day of your life is not the sum of your life. The Mm. sum of your life is the sum of your life. You know, like the last day of your life is just a day. And I think about that a lot because I think it's really hard and there's no perfect every, everything that happens is sad. Yeah. And so, yeah. People are just doing their best. (laughs) Well, I don't want this conversation to get any more sad and depressing, but (laughs) because a recent study came out last week that showed that over a 15 month period of the pandemic, more than 120,000 children in the United States lost a primary caregiver to COVID. Just isn't it bananas? A parent or grandparent? Yeah. Yeah, a parent or grandparent, but their primary caregiver. And so that means that we just have an unimaginable number of children dealing with this trauma. I mean, it's one thing for an adult who's had a lifelong relationship in years to Mm -hmm. think about death Mm -hmm. and, you know, loved ones, but for all these children, what, what is this going to mean? This is just unprecedented for us. Yeah, that is so bananas. I, that study was so shocking, right? Um, And that was just 15 months. That was like, mm -hmm. I think they said it's the research wrapped up maybe in June and they guess maybe there's an additional 20,000 since then. So maybe 140,000 now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know how to think about that, right? That is so sad. And I think, are you familiar with Nadine Burke Harris's work on ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences? Makes me think of this. Okay. Where it's sort of like, I can't remember how many things are on this list. There's a list of things that can happen to you when you're a child that are really hard. And if you add them up, they affect Mm -hmm. your future mental health and even your physical health. And um, it's things like um, neglect or abuse or having a parent who's incarcerated. Um, But one of them, I think parents getting divorced is one of them. And then obviously losing a parent is one of them. Um, Mm. And, but then they talk about how um, one of the things that is by far most protective against like sort of having a real trauma response that persists to affect your health later is having one adult who sees you and who helps you make sense of this and who really believes in you as you're growing up. And so I guess when I think about all of those kids, the hundred, more than a hundred thousand kids, it's like, who else is there? Like, who else is there? Is it another family member? Is it a neighbor? Is it an aunt or uncle? Like you just hope for those kids that there is someone else to step in. That's like the major thing it makes me think of. Yeah, absolutely. You really do need somebody, right? Yeah. Well, maybe this is um, a sign for anyone tuning in that knows of a child who's lost a parent. Mm -hmm. This might be a good time to strengthen that relationship and support them. Totally. So one thing my husband and I um, debate, and we've actually come to our decision, but I'm curious as someone who's lost a partner, do you think you would rather go just, this is so morbid, like in an accident, like just like, that's it. (laughs) Or would you like to have, you know, a crippling disease or something that, you know, you have two years to plan? And I'm not going to say- Wait, when you said you've made a decision, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, not like we can decide, but we've decided which one we would 
which yeah, one yeah. we would Ooh, prefer. Interesting. Okay. Um, Will you tell me too after? I'll tell you, I'll tell you after. First. I don't want to. Yeah, you can answer. Oof. Oh my Lord. Um, well, this is really hard. I've never thought of it before. I actually think probably the longer illness with the time to say things to other people or like slowly come to terms. And that being said, it's so shocking when someone dies, even when you expect it, because it's like they were here and then they just disappeared. It's so existentially overwhelming. Um, That's my instinct. What do you, what would you say? So before we had my son, who's now four, I think we were both in the camp of, I I just don't want to know. Let's just, you know, make it instantaneous, get in a car accident, terrible car accident. And that's it. Um, And then you don't have to really, yeah, you don't have to suffer for a long period of time. And then, you know, you don't also have to live your life in a way where, you know, there's impeding doom um, and that sadness that comes along with that for the time period. But now that we're parents, we've both kind of had a change of heart where, like you said, you want to be able to kind of create that bucket list of things that you want to do. I mean, your husband wrote this amazing book that has touched millions of people's lives. Being able to, to kind of document all of your thoughts, knowing that there's this, you know, this time pressure that you don't normally have and everything that you've been pushing off, you can actually get done. Um, so now we're, we're the same now we're, we're both team <sighs> No and suffering, even though, you know, it, yeah, all the treatments sound awful and, you know, watching your body decay or your partner's body decay mm-hmm. sounds terrible, but at least, um, you know, you can say your goodbyes. Right, right, right. You're in it together. Yeah. How did having your child change it? Cause it sounds like that externalized it a little bit. Right. And then you're yeah. about taking on this suffering yourself, but then it's worth a yeah. trade off somehow. Right. I think that having it? that responsibility now as a parent and making sure, you know, I'd want to make sure that whatever caregiving situation he'd be moving into, I wanting to have that time to plan that and think yeah. about that. Now, you know, realistically, we all have wills and we all have directives for what we want done in those terrible situations. But I think being able to, when you're having that comfort, like I remember telling my sister, hey, I put you down in my will so that if, you know, we both die, you have to raise Bear. That's my son's name. You um, and, and, and you she's like, to. okay, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Get to. Right, right. Um, so she, her, her last kid is a, uh, is a sophomore in high school. So, you know, she had to start all over Ooh, again. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you know, having those conversations, they're not real, you know, like, yeah, like, totally. okay, that's, that's, so that's not exciting. going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. right. But being able to make a transition like that, um, you know, once you have a, a child, you have something right. that's someone who's so important to you that you're responsible for. Um, it changes it. Right. So that's so interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, we're actually um, out of time for today, but thank you for this really amazing yeah. experience. We somehow managed to like almost cry and laugh and um, <laughs> all of your amazing mm-hmm. insights and wisdom. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Oscrip Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. 
Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seely. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seely. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Thank you.